Um, so we're going to get started tonight. Um, you can open to the book of Exodus. Uh, we, we'll utilize the scriptures some. I've got, I've got most of the verses on our packet here, but to save space, I cut out um, the plagues that we're going to mention. We're going to do the first, almost the first half of the plagues tonight, and then there won't be a meeting next week because of spring break, and then the week after that is business meeting. And so, um, so then the week after that will be the next time we're back here, and we'll continue through the plagues. We'll pick up where we left off, and then we'll go into the wilderness wanderings and just talk about the main themes that we see picked up there and the geographical uh, things that are of importance as we go through the Old Testament. Um, so just as a reminder of where we're at, historically speaking, <clears throat> uh, remember that we, we had talked about the, the biggest, uh, I guess, things in Abraham's life, especially as we get into the Exodus, which is going to be really important, is that God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. And remember, he didn't have a kid at the time, but then he supplied the child and he also promised him several things along the way. One of those was he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He promised to give him the land of Canaan as his inheritance, as an inheritance for his, his children. He, he was, the Lord was careful to say, you won't inherit this land right now, but your children will. But he gave some big, I guess you'd say, not qualifications, that's not the right word, but kind of set the time frame for when that was going to happen there with, with Abraham. And the time frame that he says there is in, in Genesis um, 15, uh, 13, where he tells them that they're going to be servants in a foreign land for 400 years. And then upon their exit from that land, they're going to come out receiving many possessions. And so we know that that is a promise hanging in the air to help the children of Israel understand their time in bondage in Egypt. Is This was all directed by the Lord and told to Abraham before any of this ever took place. This was all in accordance with his plans. Now what we saw as we saw the kind of story unfold with Abraham's family is that Remember, Joseph is sold into slavery, and he goes down to Egypt, and this looks like a division of the family, which is not good. You don't want your, the family spread out, especially the family of Abraham. You don't necessarily want them divided like that. But Joseph goes down, and we think, oh no, we're, this is the, the promise that the Lord has made is sort of in jeopardy, it seems, at this moment. But then we start to see in the story that the, the children of Jacob or the children of Israel, start to pick up some really bad habits from the land of Canaan. We see that in Reuben, where he goes and sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And then we see uh, in, or before that, we see in Simeon and Levi, how they, their sister is raped, and they think of a, you know, cockamamie solution to all of this, which is to have them have the men of the village circumcise themselves before they can marry their sister. And then once they are laying up sore, then they go into the village and they kill everybody. And so we see that, we think when we read Genesis 34, hey, that's a pretty good idea. And, but then when we get to the end of the book in chapter 49, Jacob uses that event as a reason to give them really what a curse. And he curses them together. 
Um, and he also curses Reuben for what he did in sleeping with his father's wife. And so they're starting to pick up these really bad habits in the land of Canaan. And what becomes evident in the story is that God moves them out of the land of Canaan and into the land of Egypt by giving them a famine, but he has already prepared the way for them by sending Joseph down there ahead of time, even though it was in captivity. He rises through the ranks down in Egypt and becomes a very prominent individual in Egypt, and he's suited to not only provide them food, but also provide them where, where to live. Where are they living? The land, the land of Goshen, all right? Lands of Goshen, they're... <laughs> There, there, my mom used to always say that when I was a kid. I never understood it until. Uh, but they provided them the land of Goshen to live in and to, to flourish. Now, the land of Goshen becomes really important for the story of the Exodus that we, we pick up uh, tonight. So what we need to really understand before we actually get into the story of the plagues and the Exodus is is really the significance of the time period that Egypt is in at this moment when the exodus happens. And I, here, let, me, let me preface all of this by saying, um, when it comes to Egyptology, there are doctorate degrees that you can get on one dynasty of Egypt, okay? So um, there's so much in the Egyptian dynasties that it's just... It, you know, it's impossible to keep track of if you're a person like I am. And so, so there's that. It's, it's this massive uh, study. But on the other hand, th- there, are, um, there are some significant time periods in Egypt's history that I do think, as you look at them very closely, start to line up with what we see in the biblical account. Now, time-wise, what time period are we looking at for the Exodus? Um, the, the conservative date, and I don't mean that as in like the political sense, but the, the, I would say the vast majority of conservative scholarship puts the Exodus somewhere around the year 1446. And we'll see that in just a minute. I, we'll, I'll fill that blank in in just a minute. But it's somewhere in the, near the year 1446. There is another group of people that date it much later than that, like 200 years later than that. And there's a reason, there, there is a reason for that. But the reason that we date it at where we do, or where most people date it where they do, is because we're told from when Solomon built the temple, how long before Solomon built the temple, the people came out in the Exodus. We know, we know he built it somewhere around 967, and it was some years before that when they uh, when they came out of Egypt some 400 years before that, which would put, which would put it in the year um, 1446, however long it is, put it in the year 1446 when, um, when they came out of, of Egypt. And so that gives us an approximate year. And we're, we're also not sure when we see years pop up in the Old Testament, we're often not sure, are they rounding up? Are they, are, are they giving close approximations? How close approximation? When somebody says 430 years, you tend to think, okay, if they are rounding up, they're not rounding up by a lot, you know, maybe by a few years to get to 430. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? But if somebody says 400 years, well, are they, are they rounding up from 350? Or are they, you know, we, it's tough to tell sometimes. And so we've got that going on. So when you come to dating, it's not always straight down to the second. They didn't have Twitter, so they can't just like 
you know, our Facebook check-in. So you can't just like pin it on the exact moment when that happened. But I think we can get pretty close. And it seems like a lot of Egypt's history lines up. The other thing you have to consider, losers don't often get their story told, right? They, they just don't. And so um, when Egypt loses, which they did sometimes, whatever it is, battles or whatever, that often doesn't make it into the annals of history, okay? <laughs> they conveniently want to kind of scrub those things out, as we all probably do from the times where we lose. You know, we'd rather just ignore those times. Well, that's also true when within, with Egypt, you don't just have like what we have here in America so, so far. For like 200 years, we have the reign of the Americans, okay? So 200 plus years. So you've got a succession of presidents that we list it's not exactly how it is in Egypt, though I guess it would be similar. But you have dynasties that move in, and some, sometimes they're entirely different people groups. And they, they, another people group comes in and runs off the old one, and they form a new dynasty. And the history of the old dynasty is sort of scrubbed out, right? And, or lost, or whatever. And so we're, we're also going back in time and trying to uncover all these dynasties that are there. And so sometimes dating and things like that gets a little bit complex. So with all that being said, um, here's what we're looking at with Egypt. So in 1570, the Hyksos dynasty that had controlled Egypt, that was a, a long, one, very prominent dynasty that sounds a lot like a barbecue sauce. I always thought it sounded like, like barbecue. Yeah, Hyksos is what you put on ribs, I think. I don't know, but it's what it sounds like anyway. But the Hyksos dynasty had ruled and, and controlled Egypt, and I think they were, so, they were from somewhere up in um, the land of Canaan, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, they had controlled Egypt for a long time, and they were expelled by Amosis, um, who was the ruler of what's just called the 18th dynasty. And so Amoses comes in and he rules um, in the 18th dynasty. Now, um, it's most likely that Amoses or um, uh, Amenhotep I, um, or perhaps both, are the ones that are in view in Exodus 1.8, and 11 to 16. So, so you can see, I've, I've included in this packet on the back a list of the 18th dynasty, just the rulers, just for convenience there, a little chart of the, the years that they ruled, or at least approximate years. You can, find, you can find these years a little bit different, plus or minus, depending on where you look. So you might find it a little later, but this is a pretty good, a pretty good approximation of the years that they ruled. Now, you also see... Um, where am I? Okay, you, you'll also see the, in the scripture references here, if you look at uh, Exodus 1.8, um, which is about halfway down on, your, on the first page of your um, verse packet there, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Most likely, and what really does line up with the years pretty well, is this not only a new king, this is a new dynasty that has come in and... The old dynasty, like I said, is scrubbed out. And the dynasty of Ah, Moses, and, uh, and Amenhotep I are you know, in place. Amenhotep is his successor. And they're, they're put in place. And hey, we don't know anything about what's been going on around here. All we know is that there are people living here and we rule them now. And so you've got the... Now imagine this. You've got a new 
new sheriff in town, not just a new sheriff, but a whole new dynasty. I don't have any connection nor any, any reason to like anybody here, right? No reason to like anybody here. And there's this massive group out in Goshen. Just imagine. I mean, so what, what, there's a threat. You, 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 you haven't even really got your feet wet in a dynasty, and that's your goal, right? Is This is my son. I'm going to build this dynasty. I'm going to pass the kingdom off to him like every kingdom has done ever in the history of mankind, and you're trying to establish your throne and for what you think would be thousands of years, millennia. And then out there in the land of Goshen are this, is this group that might be even bigger than the people that you brought in to take control of this land. And so what are you going to do to them? Um, so it makes sense, right? Like it, it makes sense that this new king that comes in is actually also part of a new dynasty. Um, and I think it makes sense of the text. So um, next thing. Let me get this thing working here so that I can see. All right, where are we at? Okay. Um, so when the subjugation of the Hebrews um, to slave labor failed, they, they, you remember they started to, okay, here's what we're going to do then. They're multiplying out there, pardon the phrase, but like the rabbits. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to subjugate them to slave labor. And we're going to put it, make it really hard on them. And they won't have the time or the energy to have children. And so that'll, that'll work. Well, that didn't happen. And in fact, it, the, the Bible tells us that they grew even more. I mean, look at uh, the next passage in Exodus there. I believe it's this one. Um, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built Pharaoh's store cities, um, Pithom and Ramesses. Uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Um, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So they subjected them to slave labor. Um, and when all of that didn't work, what did they do? They instituted infanticide. So they started killing the, male, the males of the of the born, born to the women. You see that there in 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them, one of whom named um, Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, uh, she shall live. So you have this... Well, that's what you do. You, well, let's start killing them off then. But you have to remember, too, you st- sit down as a, as a dynasty. You've just established yourself in the land. What do you want to do? Well, you start building. And so you have a group out here that is growing, and they're a threat. And so we need to control that. But then also, we need to start building. And so, hey, two birds with one stone, right? So you start putting them to slave labor. That doesn't work to control the population, and so you start killing them off to control the population, which is very interesting based on what happens to Moses next. So um, based on the date of 1446 for the Exodus, um, it seems then, is that up? Okay. Uh, It seems then that we can establish the birth date of Moses. So we see that uh, since his death is very close to the end of the wilderness period, um, and we know he was 120 
uh, when he died, I believe it is, uh, we can put his uh, death somewhere near the year 1406, which would put his birth year somewhere near 1526. And so Joseph is, uh, I'm, I'm drawing off memory here, but I think Joseph died somewhere in the year 1800s, in the year 1800, maybe, maybe it was 1700s, if I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but somewhere in there. So now we have um, Moses coming up at 1526, would have been somewhere near his uh, birth year. Okay, um, so that would mean that Moses was born sometime in the, near the year of Amenhotep I's death. Okay, now here we get the ball rolling and we start connecting some dots. All right, what that would mean then is that uh, Tutmosis I succeeds Amenhotep and is most likely the one that decrees the infanticide. Um, and the reason that we think that is because you see Moses facing the threat of infanticide and his mother doing something about it, but his older brother Aaron, who's three years older than him, we don't see anything about Aaron facing the same kind of thing. Now, it's possible that the biblical author, that happened, but the biblical author just didn't include those details, but it's also possible that a new king comes in, and that was his edict. Well, we can't control the population. My father couldn't control the population, so now I'm going to, and this is how I'm going to do it. We're going to start killing off some of these babies, okay? And so he starts this, this edict at a regime change or a, you know, a, a king change. Tracking with me so far? Okay, all this is making sense? Okay. Um, all right. Now, the reason that that is interesting is because most likely then, Moses was raised by the first daughter. Um, okay, this is hard to pronounce. Hot Shep Suit. Um, did I get it right? I'm sure. Uh, let's just call her Ketchup. All right? Uh, <laughs> Because um, it's really hot, hot, she- uh, anyway, ketchup, uh, Shep suit. Um, okay, so uh, who is the daughter of the I? Now, what happens is she ends up marrying her half-brother. So the I has hot Shep suit, and then he, his wife, uh, I'm not sure if she either died or he married somebody else, but she, he had another, a son by another woman, and Hatshepsut ends up marrying Tutmos II, which is her half-brother. The, tree, the family tree stops forking at some point, and it's hard to keep track of them all and who's, how each one of them is related to who. If your relation is one slash another, then it, it's, it's hard. If you're the mother-in-law slash also the aunt, that gets strange, right? So, so she, ends up, she ends up marrying her half-brother, the II, and then he dies really young on the throne. And he hands off the throne to his, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's his son-in-law, the III. Who knows what his real name was, but he became the III. So he hands the kingdom off uh, to Most. They co-reigned for a little while, and then the III actually ends up being the um, Pharaoh. Now, here's the interesting thing. If all of this is, is right in the way that we've laid it out, uh, Hot Shepsut 
is a very interesting character in Egyptian history because she um, not only was the daughter, but she'll be listed, you'll see on the back, she's listed as a co-regent at one point, okay? Because, she, she, um, because of her position, she was sort of a, uh, how should we say this? She was a, uh, a go-getter, all right? No one told her what to do. And the way we know that is because when the III takes the throne, who isn't related to her, but is related by marriage to her, um, her policies are the ones that he enacts. And when she dies, he goes through and starts clearing out a lot of what she had done. And so we know that she was, for the most part, calling the shots. Well, this sort of lines up with Moses' story if, in fact, this is when it happened, right? Because when Moses was born, was born, she would have been somewhere in the older teen years when she's down at the river and discovers Moses in the basket. Now, what kind of girl says to her father, I know you've been killing the Hebrew children, but look how cute this one is, Right? <laughs> Right. Can I keep him, Daddy, please? But one that is a is she's got a little bit of fire to her, okay? And so it sort of matches her personality that if in fact she is the one that would be doing this, that she did that. You know, I found this Hebrew baby, the Hebrew male, but you know, the kind that you wanted to kill. I found one down at the river. We'll kill it. No, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm going to keep it and raise it as my own. The further complication here is that that makes Moses just a little bit older than Tutmose III, who takes the throne. And Tutmose III would naturally see Moses as a political threat, while Hatshepsut is really calling the shots. Well, then what happens is Moses ends up killing another Egyptian out in the field. Now, ordinarily, this is not a big deal for someone in the house of Pharaoh if they kill an Egyptian. That's not, it's a crime, it's murder and it's a crime, but it's not that big of a deal. But Moses gets run off. Well, Hatshepsut had died, if the years we have are right, she had died three years prior. So she's not there to intervene on behalf of her son. And so what does Tutmose III do? but runs him off into the land of Midian. And so it, it, if, in fact, this is the years that we have established and they're right, then it, it makes the, the, that narrative that I just presented you is probably what happened. Okay. Now, again, the years could be wrong, and, and I could be an idiot, but just... I could might be an idiot anyway. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, bear with me here. Okay, so... Um, Go ahead. I don't know, but uh, um, Tutmose III is a son-in-law married in. So it's not like he has any more claim than Moses does. Um, so it seems like in the biblical text, most people identify Moses as a, as a Hebrew, like they know they know that he is. It's brought up to him whenever he, after he killed the Egyptian, you know, and so, um, so I'm not, I'm just not sure. I, I don't know, but I would say that Egypt's, in Egypt's history, 
it wouldn't be an unheard of thing because Hatshepsut is more or less, she's on the throne. And so that, and that would be kind of unheard of. So I think the rules are more like suggestions, it seems like, in Egyptian history. So how likely it would be that he would see Moses as a threat because he's in, in line for the throne, I don't know. But look, he could, be, she, he could see, Tutmos III could see Moses as a threat simply because his mom is the one calling the shots. His adopted mother is the one calling the shots. And if she's calling the shots, she could probably do whatever she wanted. Um, so there's that. Um, oh boy, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. You're raising the Pharaoh's household. Yeah, uh, and we do, I mean, we don't have, you know, a, a record to point to to say he did. Ha ha. But logic and reason would tell you absolutely that he wasn't. He it didn't seem like he was considered a, you know, a second class citizen in any way. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but, uh, okay, so uh, Amenhotep II would then be the pharaoh identified as the pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, um, he, there's some, there's, this gets crazy. Okay, this just gets absolutely nuts here. Um, because, um, well, before I say that, um, the further irony of Thutmose III the one that drove Moses out into the, into the wilderness. There, is, there are only two pharaohs, and this is one of the reasons why the double dates here on the Exodus. There are only two pharaohs where, that reigned long enough where Moses could, one, be driven out into the wilderness, and the pharaoh could stay on the throne long enough that Moses would stay out in Midian for 40 years. And one of them is Tutmosis III. He, he reigned, the, his is the second longest reign of the 18th and 19th dynasties. Uh, Ramses is the, is the other one. That, uh, stop it with the Nacho Libre. But uh, he's, he's the other one that would have reigned. That, and so that's why some people think it might have been during his reign. Um, okay, so... Uh, so, so far, we've got a, a pretty good set of, of data building up in favor of this date. Now, uh, that would put Amenhotep II as the one that is the Pharaoh during the Exodus. But then the, the other thing that gives a little bit of credibility to Amenhotep is that his son, um, Tutmose IV, takes the throne after him, but Tutmose IV wasn't the oldest son. Tutmose IV was at least the second oldest son. Now, why is that important? Pharaoh's son's going to die. Pharaoh's oldest son's going to die. For an unknown reason, we suspect the oldest son in Pharaoh's house does not get the throne, but Tutmose IV gets the throne. Okay, I say unknown. You understand what I'm saying in quotes. Uh, now, what we, find, what we have found is something called the, uh, the dream stela. And if you go to Egypt today, you can see this. The dream stela is um, in front of 
the Sphinx. Okay, you know the Sphinx sitting out there in the middle of Egypt with no nose? Right in the middle of his paws is what's called the Dream Stela. Now, the Fourth. The, this is how the dream stela sort of lays it out. Okay, it's a story about Tutmos the Fourth taking the throne. Um, basically, the, as the story goes, Tutmos the Fourth is roaming out in the wilderness, and he's getting hot, and he's about to pass out. And he, uh, one of the gods of Egypt, appears to him. Horus appears to him, and uh, by the way, the Sphinx is some think is modeled after the god Horus. And so the Sphinx at this point is covered up in sand. And Horus appears to him and says, if you uncover this, the Sphinx down to the bottom of the feet, then you will get the throne. That's, that's what it says. That's, I mean, that's my translation, but that's basically it. Okay. Now, the way we interpret that is he's not ordinarily in line for the throne, but He's going to be given the throne. That's what that means, right? Um, And so he uncovers the Sphinx, as legend has it, and then he gets the throne. And so what that tells us is that he's not in line for the throne, which means that he's not the oldest. Now, we don't have um, written down in Egyptian history, and then I had a conversation with this nut job Moses, and he told me, and then we had all these frogs and flies and all this stuff for you know a time and then we let these slaves go and all of that we don't we don't have that in Egyptian history so the best we can do is see what what events transpired and sort of try to connect the dots as best as possible and this is what we come up with and and I the the thing is though it seems to make a lot of sense right now any questions about that before I move on Um, now Moses is driven out of the land of Egypt. And so if you look on the map here, here's your map, Shannon, you got a map. Um, so if you look on the map, bottom right, okay, that is the land of Midian. So if I, let me just, uh, I'll do this here. Here's the land of Midian. Okay. Got it. Hey, all right. Okay, good. Um, up here in the green is the land of Goshen. Right down here, the red dot, is Memphis. The, one of the reasons why that red dot is really important is because um, Amenhotep II made Memphis his home, whereas the other pharaohs before him and after him had made uh, other cities their home. The reason that it's important that he made Memphis his home is because you see how closely it's located to the land of Goshen. So that there would have been the Israelites right here and would have been Pharaoh's house right here very, very, in very close proximity. That, that's a lot more important than the house of Pharaoh being a lot further down the Nile um, than what Amenhotep did. So those all, that also tends to line up. Make sense? Yes, Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II. Um, he made Memphis his home. I'm not sure if it was the capital or not, but yeah, yeah, had great live music and and smoking hot ribs, <laughs> and they, they smothered it in hick sauce, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, he. This is 
This is going nowhere good in a hurry. Um, okay, so then we start to get to the plagues where Moses, remember, you remember Moses is out in the land of Midian for 40 years. And you'll remember too that Moses, he doesn't want to go at first. He doesn't want to go in and, and actually tell Pharaoh anything. He, when you first meet Moses in the book of Exodus, he's, he's sort of a coward. He comes across as a little bit of a coward. Um, God tells him this and he's like, yeah, but, and God says, don't worry about that. I got that. And he's like, well, yeah, but don't worry about that. I got that. And he's like, well, I just don't want to go. It's you know, pretty much what he just kind of comes out and, and says. And he's like, pick someone else. And, you know, God gives him Aaron. And, and there's a point where God gets kind of, kind of hot uh, with Moses. And you'll remember, and this is really important for the story and really for the story of the whole Bible. You remember Moses, is, is, um, he gets the call. He's decided, I'm going to go. Aaron's going to go with him. Or, yeah, they're going to be partners in this. Um, he takes his wife and his sons, and they leave. And then on the road to Egypt, what happens? Do you remember? Yeah, God tries to kill him. And you're left with this really strange story where on the road, God's anger is kindled against Moses, and he goes after him to kill him. And in the middle of the night, his wife wakes up, and what does she do? You remember she takes a flint rock, and she circumcises her son, and she takes the foreskin that she circumcised, places it on Moses' toe, and says, you've become a bridegroom of blood to me. Well, that's abundantly clear as to what that means, right? And in no need of cultural interpretation at all. But it seems as what's happening is that Moses has been called by God to go deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he has not sought to make sure his house is in order to first circumcise his own children. And what's been required of the children of Israel up until this point. You circumcise your children on the eighth day. And he tells Abraham, if anyone among you is not circumcised, he'll be cut off from his people. Well, here is Moses traveling to set these people free. Okay, baby, let's go. We got our kids taking the station wagon. And Moses hasn't sought to put his house in order. And it, it also kind of leaves the impression I don't know if this is true exactly, but it, it leaves the impression in the text that his wife's not so keen on this whole idea. <laughs> because when she, what she tells Moses is, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Meaning, I had to circumcise my child because of you, is the way it seems to, be, to come across in the text. And she hangs it on his toe, all right? I don't think that was kind, all right? That was... <laughs> it's left as just a statement in the text. I get the impression that was probably a much longer argument, all right, that happened along the way. But um, she seems pretty upset about the whole deal, about what she had to do. And it, and it also kind of leaves you thinking, why didn't Moses do this? Why wasn't Moses the one to circumcise his child? I don't know. So anyway, it seems as though the Lord is very particular about the sins of his people. And not only that, but Moses has grown up in Egyptian culture, and so it seems like the circumcision thing went right past him. Okay? So Egyptian culture has made its way into Moses. And, and what we're going to find is Egyptian culture has actually made its way into Israel as well, which plays into the story because when they go down to tell Pharaoh to, to let my people go, um, uh, let's see, I, I got something else there. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Hang on. Let me go back one. I, I missed I miss one. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me make sure that I'm in the right spot. Okay, I think I, I think I missed one on the on the slides here. Um, so the the fact that the the play, as we see the plagues happen um, in the story, and I'm going to tell you this one because I forgot to include it on the slides. But um, what we see play out in the story of the plagues is God actually judging Egypt for enslaving his people. And not only judging Egypt for the enslavement of his people, but he goes after at least 10 of the gods of Egypt. And this is further evidenced by the fact that God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened by the Lord. We see this in a number of passages throughout Exodus. That's the first blank there on that indented uh, um, point there uh, underneath the heading of the Exodus. So his heart is hardened by the Lord. So it's like he tells him, Moses, go down there and set my people free, but I'm going, and Moses, and, and Pharaoh is going to be inclined to listen to the plagues as they happen, but I'm like a rubber band. I'm going to pull his heart back this direction so that he can't run away from me, and I'm going to continue to wail on him with 10 plagues, and then finally I'm going to let him go. And so he tells Moses, go down there. Well, I was reading this story to my, my son the other day. We were, uh, Grayson and I are, going, are doing our read through the Bible. It's probably going to take us two years, I think, <laughs> to read through the Bible. We're doing our read through the Bible. And, um, and so we get to this story, and he's like, why on earth would he do that? He literally asked me, because he, he reads it, and he says, go down there and tell Pharaoh. And then like the next verse, he says, but I'm going to harden his heart, and he's not going to listen to you. And Grayson looks at me, he's like, why would he do that? And I don't, who hasn't asked that question? Why would he do that? And it's because he's going to beat Pharaoh so badly that the children of Israel are watching all of this going, oh, well, the gods of Egypt have nothing on the God that's setting us free. That's the idea anyway. Okay? That's the premise. Okay. So not only is it seen in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but it's also seen in Aaron's serpent staff Remember, his, serp, his staff turns into a serpent on the floor, and then the Egyptians do the same thing. But his staff swallows up the serpent staff of the Egyptian magicians. And it shows that the, 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 um, you know, the Egyptians are, are pretty happy, satisfied with themselves. The David Blaines of the Egyptian community are able to turn their staffs into snakes too. But then all of a sudden, the Lord's snake comes in and just swallows them up. And so they're left going, well, that was interesting, right? And then it turns back into a staff. And so, um, so then we come back to the first plagues. And so the first plague, the turning the water to blood, seems to be a judgment on the Egyptian god Happy, which is an ironic name, but Happy, um, the, the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. So there is a, a, the God happy floods the Nile and produces all of these, uh, you know, obviously crops and, and fish, lots of things. That's why when the annual flood of the Nile came, it was a celebration because the God had showed up, they said. And she also had other names. She was, um, or it's kind of, I think it's a he, but it's, it's androgynous. And so they refer to it as a God, but it sort of looks like a goddess, um, some of the titles of happy were Lord of the Fish. But you notice when Aaron curses the Nile, what does it bring? 
the death of the fish. Because when the flooding of the Nile would happen, happy would come. That was her, that was her grand appearance. The Nile is flooded. The God happy has brought us the, the flooding of the Nile. And here's all the fish that we can now, that are in abundance, they're easily accessible, I suppose. Um, and, but when Aaron curses the water, uh, the fish die, right? Here is happy, doubled up actually. Um, so that's the God happy that they would worship. Okay, um, so then, so that's the first plague. He curses the Nile. It turns to blood. It, the, the water is undrinkable. The fish uh, stinketh, and uh, the fish die. And so it's, it makes everything virtually useless in all of Egypt. They can't use it for the things that they normally use it for. And so God is demonstrating, um, uh, you, your God's not the one that controls the Nile. Uh, I am, okay? So then we get to the second plague, the second plague of the frogs. It seems to be a judgment on the Egyptian goddess Heket. Um, so you can do that. It's just a guttural, a little like you're hawking up a loogie. Um, it's uh, Heket. And so the uh, Heket is the Egyptian god of fertility. And um, she looked like a frog. She was a frog. And when the flooding of the Nile came, what happened as a result of the flooding of the Nile? Well, lots of frogs came out, and the frogs were a good sign, a sign of uh, fertility, because what happens when the Nile floods? Well, there's crops. There's, everybody's happy. There's water everywhere. People can not only eat, but they can drink, and there's lots of uh, fish and lots of good food and, and all of this kind of stuff. What do you think that's going to lead to? Uh, well, that's going to lead to reproduction in the land of Egypt. There's going to be lots of kids born nine months later um, because of the happiness of everybody that happy has made, uh, right? And so um, the frogs that then show up get associated, obviously, with the goddess of fertility because lots of production happens at the flooding of the Nile when the frogs come. So here is uh, uh, happy, or uh, sorry, Heket, uh, um, right here, over here on the right-hand side. See her? Frog head, yeah, frog head. Yeah, some we've even found little statues in Egypt that are just little frogs, so it's for Heket. Uh, okay. Um, Yeah, um, uh, uh, this one in particular, I think what we found a frog statue going back to 3000 BC. So for some time, uh, Heket had been a worship. I mean, but there's hundreds of, of gods. So why these 10, I, I don't know, but yeah, there are. Um, the third plague is the plague of the gnats. And it seems like this is a judgment against the Egyptian god. Uh, it says Geb up there, but it... it it's pronounced, like I think, Keb, um, but you can hear kind of the, the G come out there. Um, Geb. Um, Geb is not the god of the gnats. He's the god of the dust of the earth. All right? I want you to look at the text. Um, let's see. Exodus eight seventeen. Read it, somebody. Exodus eight seventeen in your packet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. It, it, I think it would probably be more apt to call this plague the plague of the dust of the earth than it is the plague of the gnats. Aaron strikes the dust of the earth 
and it turns into gnats. Like he strikes the dust of the earth as a sign of the plague, I guess you'd say. And it turns into gnats and goes into the homes everywhere. Now, um, Geb is, or, or Keb is thought to provide growth to the crops because the, he controlled the dust, the, the dirt. He was the god of the dirt. And so when the crops grew, that was Geb playing along with the rising of the, of, of the river and then the flooding of the Nile and, you know, all the frogs and fertility. And then Geb, he comes along and plays along with the whole deal and he causes the crops to grow. Well, here Aaron strikes the Nile, <laughs> turns the water to blood. Here come the, the, all the frogs and I'm going to make frogs come out your nose. I mean, there's going to be so many frogs. And then all of a sudden, and so that they're a plague on humanity. And then, uh, then Aaron strikes the dust of the earth, and they turn into gnats, and they're everywhere. And um, some people think it was lice, but um, gnats, lice, something, something along those lines is, is plaguing the people, in, and they're in everything. Um, here is Geb, picture of Geb, your illustration. They all kind of kind of look alike. They all sort of look a little bit like Pharaoh, don't they? <laughs> um, amazing how that works. Uh, which he's coming on the tenth one. Um, all right. The fourth plague is the plague of the flies, and it seems to be a judgment on the Egyptian goddess uh, or uh, god uh, uh, Kepri. Now, um, the Egyptian god uh, Kepri has the head of a fly. And some people, uh, you're not seeing it. Some people say, uh, you got that last blank, has the head of a fly. Some people say it's a, more like a dung beetle. And she became, this, or this god became known for um, rebirth. Because if you watch a dung beetle being, doing their thing, they crawl up on a pile of dung and they uh, plant their egg inside the dung. And then when it comes out, it's, uh, it's not like a larva or anything like that. It's a, it's a full-blown dung beetle when it emerges. And so it, it kind of looks like they go into the dung dead and they come out alive, reborn. Um, and so he became the god of rebirth. So it's possible this is a plague of the flies. It's also possible that it's a plague of the flying dung beetle or some sort of beetle-type um, thing. Otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's an annoyance. Let's put it that way. If you've never seen a plague of flies, this is what one looks like. Um, so this is in uh, Wisconsin, and apparently, I guess, uh, is it Wisconsin, maybe Minnesota, Minnesota, the head of the Mississippi River in, the, in Minnesota, I think. Um, apparently, at some point in the year, the water on the Mississippi rises to the point where it causes tons of flies to, to happen sometime, I think, during the summer. And they actually have to break out snow plows to scrape the dead bugs off the road, and they just they just gather everywhere. So if you can imagine, uh, maybe even a worse plague than that uh, happening. But but here's the 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 the, the further the further thing that that is really important about all of this is that you notice that the plagues that are happening, and you'll see them happen in the story uh, as you read those those plagues. So go back and read them tonight. But you'll see what's happening in the story as it gets further on. First of all, the, there's a couple of them that the magicians are able to reproduce. The water turning to blood, the frogs, they're able to reproduce those. But what are they not able to reproduce? Getting them to disappear. So they're not, they're not able to 
They're not a, they have to appeal to Moses. All right, stop it. Stop it. Please, stop it. Moses is the one that has to get him to disappear. And then it gets to a point where the fly, I think it's the gnats or the flies that come out and they can't reproduce this anymore. And from then on out, they're, they're not able to reproduce the axe. That's, that's one big part of the plagues is that the magicians think that they can replicate what God is doing, but it, it becomes more than they can actually bear. They can't actually do it. And then the other part is the Israelites are watching from the land of Goshen nearby and they're untouched by these plagues. So it's happening across all the land of Egypt, and for some reason it's not happening in the land of Goshen. It's a testimony to the the fact that God is protecting his people and he's going to get them out, but he's not letting Pharaoh off the hook that easy. He's intentionally hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't listen to Moses, so that he can not only beat Pharaoh into submission and, and really make him cry, and judge him, but also so that he can prove to Pharaoh and to the people, to his own people, that he's God over all of this. It's a fascinating account. And I think it lines up well with what we know of history. That this actually happened and is a is a just a terrific and terrible and crazy story that took place in Egyptian history. And it will never be recorded from their side. But I think we have good reason to believe this is what took place. Questions? Go ahead. When you, when you look at that map and you see uh, Memphis and you see uh, the land of Goshen or whatever, oh, I guess I was surprised that Midian, look where it is. Uh-huh. I mean, these things just didn't happen like overnight. No, no, no. Someone's yeah. Well, we're, and we're, we're even going to talk a little bit about this next time with, maybe next time or maybe the time after, with, um, with the time it took for the plagues and the time and whether Pharaoh's there or whether he's not in the death. And because, you know, obviously Amenhotep dies um, a little bit later on, 25 years into his reign, I think. And so we have to kind of talk about some of those, some of those issues. And so sometimes with the Bible... It makes it look like it was just, and it may not have been. Some, some of this may not have been. We, we're, not, we're not totally sure, but we'll talk more about those kinds of complexities later on. Any other questions? Go ahead. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> I had a teacher who said that most of those Genesis on the backside of Midian were descended down to Egypt to awaken their knowledge of who God is. And he speaks to them. Ah. He speaks to them over and over again. Let there be light. He says things to them. Yeah. Yes, they see the promise to Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably argue it wasn't, but that's okay. Uh, it's subjective, uh, but uh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Good. Any other questions or comments? All right. Do 
Yeah. Um, there, there was also one other point, and I, I didn't make this. Maybe we'll talk about it next week at length, but I, I do think it's interesting in the story that, uh, you know, there's God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and then there's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And um, what, what is interesting in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, if you just kind of look through Exodus, um, I, I seem to remember this is kind of sticking in my mind, and I, and I think this is right, that nine times it mentions that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, like specifically God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then nine times I think it mentions heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Um, so what you find is these hardenings, um, they don't happen um, opposite of Pharaoh's volition, but in coinciding with Pharaoh's volition. It's not as though Pharaoh was like, well, I wanted to let him go, but you hardened my heart. No, no he, he very much was there. I, I think he would have been convinced after the first plague, but... Um, but God uh, did not let him off the hook that easy, uh, but was going to um, beat the gods of Egypt out of his, the hearts of his people. So, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pray or Tom's going to yell at me. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we're so grateful for a time to just look um, deeply at, at the, uh, the plagues. And, and Lord, we know that this, this happened as much as the culture wants to tell us that this is just metaphorical or whatever. Um, we know that this is true, and, and we're grateful for its testimony in Scripture. And um, we pray that we can glean from it all of the things that uh, you would have for us to understand, and that we can walk away knowing that um, you are Lord of heaven and earth, and that there is no God beyond you, and that you uh, hold all of this and all of us in the palm of your hand, and that you turn the hearts of men and so we've prayed for people tonight that are, whose hearts are hardened, and we pray that you would soften them because we know that you guide the hearts of men. And um, we also pray that uh, we would grow convinced over the study of your word that um, we can trust you, that you're uh, worthy of our trust and our adoration and our affection, and that as we gather on Sunday morning, um, that we would be able to sing praises to your name and really mean it from the depths of our heart because, um, because we trust you and we've seen your hand work in our lives. And we pray that throughout the week, um, through Monday through Saturday, that we would also be able to trust you um, to know that uh, regardless of what situation we find ourselves, that you, that you are uh, worthy of being trusted and that even when things look bleak, uh, we can trust what we know about you, uh, even when it's very hard to trust that you remember us and that you know your people and that you know what we need and that you provide every step of the way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.